I'm going to ask you, contrary to our normal practice, to continue standing. If there are any of our youngest children who would like to go to Stepping Stones, which is our program for smaller kids for the sermon time, we dismiss you at this time. The rest of you, please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. standing more than usual this morning, I realize, but hopefully the reason for that will become very apparent if you listen carefully to the Word of God this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8, this is the holy and errant Word of God. Please give it your careful attention. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalim on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseai, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor... And Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, 
From the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Please be seated. I have been to many different sporting events in the course of my life, and at those events I've heard many of the great traditions and some of the great cheers that have filled stadiums and arenas, and I have to say after all these years, still my favorite is the one where half of the stadium or the arena says, we are, and the other half of the arena says, Penn State. I just love that. There's something beautiful in its simplicity. It is intimidating, I think, to the opponent and its fans. In a weird way, it really very much feels like, and I think may for many people be, a real declaration of unity and purpose and mission. But as I was at the hockey games the last couple of days, I was listening to it go from one side of the arena to the other. It got me thinking in light of what I've been working on in the scriptures this week, it got me thinking, what are we really saying when we say that at a game anyway? We are Penn State. What what are we really declaring about who we are and what our relationship is to one another? I came to the conclusion after contemplating that for a few moments that really... In spite of, you know, when I think about how much I really don't have in common with so many people in that arena when we're saying it, I'm not even an alumnus for heaven's sake, you know, I'm thinking really what we're really saying at the bottom line is we all want the same team to win the game. And that's really that simple. But still, there's something about that declaration that scratches an itch for us, I think. There is kind of an instinctual need to belong. To see ourselves as part of us, not just a bigger community of people, but to be a part of a significant community, an important community, a respectable community, a community that's making an impact. It's, it's, a, it's a, an itch for fellowship that I think is built into our nature because we're made in the image of a God who is fellowship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We long for that fellowship, that community. But fellowship in sports is really very superficial and really very temporary. What about deeper, more important fellowships in life? Senses of community. Places where we belong. Things that are more profound. Things that are more lasting. What are those communities? What's that fellowship based in? How do you define what that fellowship or community is? I read a book a few years ago by a man named Randy Frazee, and he wrote a book called The Connecting Church, But in the beginning of that book, he's not talking about church in particular. He's talking about any fellowship, kind of like I am right now. He's talking about any kind of fellowship, any kind of community that you have in life. And he says that every real significant and lasting community shares in common five different things that he lists. I'll give those five to you. First of all, they share in common an authority structure. Secondly, a creed, a set of beliefs that they hold in common. Standards, number three, standards or rules for the community, written and unwritten. Traditions, interestingly, he adds, is one of the elements. Traditions which 
These are practices in the community that teach and reinforce the creed and the standards. And then finally, mission, a sense of a goal for the community. Any real profound, impactful, lasting community has those five features. Now, add to that the question of, okay, once you figure out what's the basis of those things, where, how do you define those things for a community? The second question is, how eternal are those principles? How lasting are those principles? Do they change or do they stay the same? Big issue in American government. The Constitution of the United States of America is our founding document, and the Constitution, in a very real sense, establishes those things for us. Our sense of authority structure, our beliefs, our standards, our traditions, our mission, it's, it's, it's there. But isn't that one of the biggest debates in the judicial system especially, but in government in general, is do we have to adhere to the original intent of the authors when they wrote the Constitution, when we interpret it, or is the Constitution intended to be a evol- an evolving, living, growing, changing document that adapts to each new generation, new age? It's a huge issue. Okay, all that aside, now I want to talk about the church. Those five things that Randy Frazee listed definitely are true for, that binds our unity together, you know, binds us together as a fellowship and a community as a church. Where do we get those five things from? Our authority structure, our standards, our beliefs. Of course, we get it from Scripture. The Word of God. God has given us the foundational document for our fellowship that defines who we are and defines all that structure for us. And we must interpret this document in light of the original intent of the author. It is not an evolving document. It is not a changing, adapting document. We interpret it according to the intent of the author, God himself. We're talking about fellowship in this series of sermons for the next couple of months. And I want to talk this morning about how we define our fellowship. And so I want to talk to you about the word of God. Because it is the foundational document to who we are and what we do. And our relationship with one another. Isaiah chapter 8, you'll remember these verses from our studies at Christmas time. We looked at the prophecies in the beginning of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, it says, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire the dead on the behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light. To the testimony, to the law, to the word of God, that's the rallying cry for every generation of the church. John Calvin once said, the first and foremost mark of the true church is faithfulness to the word of God. Let me say that again. The first and foremost mark of the true church is faithfulness to the word of God. It's always been that way. The true church, the church that is born again by grace, justified through faith alone, covered in the blood of Christ, that church is always going to be a church committed to the word of God, founded upon the word of God, and defined by the word of God. We read that great passage from Acts 2 earlier. And it said there that after 3,000 people were added to the 12 disciples on that great day of Pentecost, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. 
Don't ever separate those two. The apostles' teaching, the word of God as it was given to the prophets and the apostles, and the fellowship that is built upon it. Those two things go together. And so this morning, the question I want to ask is, what does that kind of a commitment to the word of God and a fellowship of believers look like? Because we see it here in Nehemiah 8. This is the Old Testament church. This is before the first coming of Christ. But all of the features of a word-driven fellowship, a fellowship driven by the word of God, are all found here. Beautifully illustrated for us. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 8, let me just orient you in terms of the history of redemption. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God are in an identity crisis. They are in a vulnerable time in the history of the Old Testament church. They have just come out of a period of God's judgment and discipline upon them for their idolatry, for their false religion, for their sinfulness that permeated their entire culture. God was merciful. God was patient. But finally, he had the Babylonians, the evil empire, the Babylonians come and wipe out the Jewish nation, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And he carried away the the Israelites. He carried away the Jews to be captives, to be in exile in Babylon for two generations. And what we have when we get to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is two generations later, we have God being faithful to his covenant promise, as he always is. In spite of the sin of his people, he said, I am going to return a faithful remnant to the land. And I'm going to reestablish them as the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth. By my grace, I will do this. And Ezra and Nehemiah are the historical account of how he brought that about. King Cyrus of Persia put out a decree and sent the Jews back to Jerusalem. And then 80 years later, he sent them a great leader by the name of Ezra, a priest and a scribe who called them back to the word of God. And then 50 years after that, he sent a great leader in the man Nehemiah who had a burden to see the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt so that the people of God could be secure under God's protection from their enemies in the land. And you get to the point where the wall is finished. They finished it in just a few months. And at the end, a time of, that you really want to celebrate, what a great place, by God's grace, they've been brought to. And you have this event that happens. It says in the last verse of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, that on the first day of the seventh month, they all gathered in the marketplace, a place called the Watergate. It's interesting that that is the Jewish New Year. The first day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar is New Year's Day. What a great day to have a celebration about a huge new beginning in the life of God's people. The temple is rebuilt, the walls are complete, and Jerusalem is secure. But I want you to understand that what happens here in chapter 8 is not just a civic celebration. What happens here in chapter 8 is an honest-to-goodness, spirit-given revival and reformation among the people of God. This is a significant moment where physically God has restored his people to the land, but here is where the Holy Spirit, it's almost like a day of Pentecost. It's not quite to that extent, but it's it's almost like the Holy Spirit descends upon the Old Testament church and they are reborn in their spiritual identity as the kingdom of God on earth. 
Revival and reformation begin and end with the Word of God. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. This is a time of crucial change in the life of the Old Testament people of God. And if you kind of step back from the Old Testament and kind of read in the broad scope as you sweep through the Old Testament, there is a distinct difference that happens from this point on. Because up until the time of the Babylonian uh, destruction and captivity, the tabernacle first and then the temple was really the center of the Jewish religious and spiritual life. Everything revolved around the blood sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple. The temple was at the center of the religious and therefore the rest of the life of the people of Israel. But the temple was destroyed. And when they, God sent this faithful remnant back into the land, the temple was rebuilt. But the scriptures go out of its way to point out to us that the second temple was far less glorious than the first. Another interesting thing that happened during the Babylonian captivity is that the people... Of course, they didn't have the temple while they were in Babylon. And so when it came to worship, when it came to coming together as God's people, what happened was they developed what we came later to call the synagogues. The synagogues were where the elders of the people would just gather people in homes, kind of like our small group Bible studies or our church plants or small churches, just gather the Jewish people in their homes, and they would read the law, they would talk about it, and they would pray together. And so what's interesting is here now, they're reestablished, they have Jerusalem back, they have the temple back, but they want to gather at the water gate, which was the general marketplace, one of the general marketplaces in the city. Not at the temple, but in the marketplace, and they want to have what looks very much like a New Testament worship service as they gathered. And it's a beautiful experience. And what you see here is a, a very gentle, not a complete shift, because Christ has not come yet. Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. Christ is the fulfillment of the high priesthood. Christ is the fulfillment of the animal sacrifices and the blood shed and the cleansing. Christ fulfills all that when he comes in the future. So that temple is still important to the life, the spiritual life of the people of God. But there is a clear shift to where from this point on, the Jews are called the people of the book. They are the people of the book. The book becomes much more central. The book of the word of God becomes central to who they are, to their fellowship and to their ministry. And so just let me quickly kind of run through here what I see as being six characteristics of what healthy, God-given, spirit-filled fellowship really looks like in a church according to this worship service, which happened actually even before the first coming of Christ. The first thing I see here is that healthy fellowship displays a deep hunger for the word of God. Healthy fellowship displays a hunger for the word of God. Look at verse 1. Did you notice where the initiative for this service came from? This was not something that a bunch of the priests or scribes or elders got together in a back room and concocted and put together a program and ran out there for the people. This was something that the people cried out for. They called to Ezra and say, come and read the word of God to us. These people did not have Bibles in their homes. They longed for Ezra to bring the word of God to them. It was a hunger, a spirit-given hunger within the people of God that initiated this revival and reformation. You can see their attitude reflected in their passion, their attentiveness, 
and their willingness to listen for what must have been about six or seven hours that day to the word of God. And the abiding principle of this is that true revival begins when the Holy Spirit produces hunger for the word of God among God's people. That's where it begins. When God's people get a deep longing to hear, to understand, and to apply what God has spoken. I know many of you pray for me on Sunday mornings and other times for me as I come up to preach the word. And I deeply, deeply appreciate that and ask you to please continue to do so. But understand that I also spend a lot of time on Sunday mornings praying for you. That the Holy Spirit will work in you. That the Holy Spirit will clear away the distractions. That the Holy Spirit will soften your hearts. That the Holy Spirit will open your ears and your eyes. That when the word of God is read and explained to you, that you'll respond the way that these people respond. That you will have that hunger that must be satiated by a clear explanation of God's word. Struggling churches often think, well, if we could just get a new preacher, then our church's problems will be fixed. But it begins, reformation and revival begins when there's a hunger for God's word among the people. I've often thought that when a church begins a, a search process for a new pastor, they should not do anything until they've spent a good long season in prayer asking for the Holy Spirit to descend upon the church and fill the church with a hunger for the word of God. Because God can provide a pretty doggone average and barely adequate pastor and he will feed that church and excite that church with the word of God if there's a hunger for the word there. Ask and you will receive. Reformation and revival begins with a work of the Spirit that looks like hunger for the word. Secondly, healthy fellowship displays a prominence of God's word. The word of God is everywhere in the life of a healthy Truly healthy biblical fellowship. The word of God is everywhere. Now I'm not talking about having to have six hour services. Don't worry. This was an unusual service. But what is consistent in true healthy biblical fellowship is that the word of God is very, very prominent in many different ways. Today when we think of worship, we tend to separate the preaching of the word from what we call worship. Matter of fact, we'll say we've got a worship team or a worship leader who will lead us in worship, and then the preacher will come up and preach the word. That's not the way it is in Scripture. That's the preaching, the proclamation of God's word, the reading and the explanation of God's word is just as much, and matter of fact, foundational to worship. And our response to the word of God is the other part of worship. Worship is dialogue between God and his people. Worship is when God speaks to his people through his word and his people, because the spirit has prepared them to be so, they're hungry for that word, they're humble, they receive it, they are thrilled with the vision of the glory of God that's revealed in scripture and they respond in thankfulness and joy, in awe, in real worship. I've often said that in Western culture, in American culture particularly, our worship services are kind of backwards. I've always said that if we, and it's always pragmatic, believe me, I've tried to do it otherwise. It's very difficult to, to change it around, but I've always thought it really would be better if we put the 30, 40 minutes of the preaching of the word at the beginning of the service so that you can hear the word of God, 
listen attentively and then be given the rest of the service to respond in thankfulness and confession and and joy and awe and worship. But worship is dialogue. Just never forget that. Worship is dialogue between God and his people. Worship is the response of a spirit-filled, born-again heart to the revelation of God's glory that is in his word. That's what worship is. And that's why the word of God must be dominant in our worship. It must permeate our worship. Even though we don't do the service in that order that I talked about, that's the reason why every element of our service is initiated by God speaking through his word, if you've not noticed that already. God speaks and we respond. God's word calls us to sing. God's word calls us to pray. God's word calls us to give. God's word pronounces benediction upon us. God speaks and we respond in thankfulness and worship. The word of God must be prominent when we gather together for worship because this is the height of our fellowship together. I know we evangelicals often criticize other types of churches where they have five or ten minute homilies or inspirational messages that have very little in the way of the word of God in them and we rightly criticize that. But too many evangelicals, I think, are content with sermons that are five or ten minutes of explanation of God's word or exposition and 40 minutes of entertainment. It's not about the length so much as whether God is being listened to, whether he is the one driving the dialogue between him and his people. Even the layout of this service, this revival at the Watergate, even the layout speaks to the prominence that the word of God should have among God's people. Did you notice that? Verse 4, it says they built a wooden platform for Ezra. In the original Hebrew, the word there is actually tower, <clears throat> a tower that they built for Ezra. Now, I don't know, I mean, we think, think of a tower, we think of something really high. I don't know how high it was. But it was high because it goes on to say in verse 5 that when Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, he was above all the people. And what those seemingly casual observations about that service say to me and reminds me of is what I've always seen as I've studied church history is that the architecture of the churches always reflects the priorities and theology of the church. The architecture of churches always reflects the priority and theology of the churches. Think about the Middle Ages. Think about the time when the church became corrupt in many large-scale ways. How during the, what they call the Dark Ages, is because they had gotten away from the Word of God. And the worship of the church and the life of the church became much more focused upon the sacraments, upon the rituals, the priests and their activities. And so when you think of a church from the Middle Ages, what do you think of? You think of one of these big Gothic cathedrals. And when you walk into a Gothic cathedral and you look to the front, what do you see? Do you see the pulpit? No. You see the altar. You see where the rituals were performed by the priests because that was the focus. Once the Reformation happened and God called his church by his spirit back to the word of God, it was immediately reflected. Now, a lot of the early Reformation pastors, teachers, theologians, they preached from the old Gothic churches, so they just adapted them, but eventually they started building their own churches. And Reformation churches were largely very simple buildings, but the prominent feature was the pulpit. 
I don't know if you've ever seen drawings or paintings from the Reformation era, but the pulpit is often very, very high. And, you know, you would get a sore neck listening to sermons at, uh, in those churches as you looked up at the pulpit. And the pulpit was central. Matter of fact, I've seen a picture of one of John Chal- Calvin's churches where the pulpit was literally in the middle of the sanctuary and he preached to people all the way around him. The architecture of our churches reflects the priorities, and the theology of the churches. I can't help but ask the question, and I, I, I hate criticizing brothers and sisters in Christ, but I can't help but ask the question, when you think of church architecture, what do the architecture of the churches built in America in the last 20 years say about our priorities and our theology? So many of them look like theaters and concert venues, and I think it does reflect what worship has become in the American church. The word of God must be prominent in our fellowship. Thirdly, healthy fellowship displays a reverence for God's word. That is an overwhelming image that you get, a response that you get as you study this this chapter. Verse 3 says that the people of God listened to the word of God attentively. In verse 5 it says they stood for the reading of God's word. That's why we had you do that a little more today than we normally do. Not always going to require that of you, but I think it's a very good thing because it shows honor and respect for the Word of God when you stand to hear it read. Verse 6 says, They responded with amens and lifted hands and faces bowed to the ground. This is a people who understood that the Creator, the the Provider, the, the King over the entire universe was speaking to them when God's Word was read. And they responded accordingly. When the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God of the universe speaks to you, you don't pull out your iPhone and start texting somebody. God was speaking, and they responded as though God was speaking. We communicate through body language. We do. And I have lived my life in a generation of kind of the post-hippie era casualness is, 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 is the divine ideal for us, you know, and we've, we rebelled against our parents' and grandparents' generation and their what we called cold formalism and liturgy and, and stiff rituals, and we just wanted to kind of let our hair down and, and, and just be casual and wear jeans and flip-flops to church and, you know, and, and just hang out. And there are some definite good loving elements to just hanging out, but I do think that in my generation and maybe some of the younger generations, we've gotten too far away from the sense of reverence that a good biblical fellowship should have towards the Word of God. I remember studying Scottish Presbyterian history when the Reformation came, when the Word of God came to Scotland and real revival and reformation happened in the nation of Scotland. As they were going to the scripture to say, what should our worship look like? Here's what they did. And I'm not saying we have to do this. I'm just saying, I like this. This this is neat. What they did is they had a, a, if they had like an assistant to the pastor, he was called a beetle. Not a, I want to hold your hand beetle. Kind of, it was spelled B-A-D-L-E. And this assistant to the pastor, he would be like an intern or maybe a pastor in training. What he would do is when the service began, is everybody get quiet and the beetle would come in the back of the sanctuary carrying the pulpit Bible. And he would, when he, when he appeared at the back of the sanctuary, everybody in the sanctuary would stand, just like you would at a wedding. 
And he would come forward and he would come to the pulpit at the center at the front of the church and he would lay the pulpit Bible on the pulpit and open it up to the text that the preacher was going to preach on that day. And then he would go back to the back and then he would bring the humble preacher and lead him up to the pulpit. Now, that's just a small thing. And I know that's the kind of thing that my generation reacted against and said, oh, that just becomes empty ritualism. It doesn't mean anything. People stop caring. And you know what? That's right. When you do that stuff to kind of show respect, you develop man-made traditions to kind of reflect the respect we should show to God and his word, it will become a mindless ritual after a while. It will become a superstition for some people after a while. That happens because we're sinners. And that's why I, I think tradition always has to be revisited. It always has to be kind of jazzed up or renewed or redone or rethought because we tend to do that as sinners. But don't ever lose the attitude of reverence for the word of God that those kinds of traditions represent. We, um, when we worship God, we show reverence to his word. We do not worship the book. Some unbelievers accuse us of that, that we worship a book. That, that's called bibliolatry. We don't do that. We worship the God who spoke to us with this book. And just like when I, you know, back when I was dating my wife, if I went to the mailbox and I pulled a pile of stack of letters out of the mailbox and, and on the top was a, a love letter from my wife that I've been anticipating for days and beneath that were advertisements from a local bank and a local car wash and all that. I'm going to treat that love letter a whole lot differently than I do the advertisements, the junk mail and the rest of the mail. And that's not because I worship the letter. It's because I love deeply the person who wrote it. And so... This is how God has spoken to us. This is how we know God. This is how he reveals himself to us. Especially in our life together, we should show it reverence. Well, when you think about the difference between reverence and superstition, that brings me to my fourth characteristic. I need to move a little quicker here. Healthy fellowship displays an understanding of God's word. In many ways, this is the most important element. Healthy, biblical, spirit-given fellowship displays an understanding of God's word. Did you notice the emphasis on that? How many times has it said in this passage that the people, that the leaders wanted the people to understand, that the people wanted to understand, and that the people did understand? Listen to it. Verse 2, the assembly was made up of all who could understand what they heard. Verse 3, Ezra read aloud to those who could understand. Verses 7, 8. 7 and 8 says that the Levites went out among the people to help the people to understand the law. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 12, the people celebrated with joy because they had understood the words that were declared to them. That's the difference between false religion and true religion. False religion, in false religion, it ends up being mindless ritualism and superstition because understanding is not that important. You're trying to please and gain favor with your God by memorizing things, uttering things, going through rituals. But that's not what the real religion, the true religion that the scripture reveals is all about. It's about hearing God speak and understanding what he has had to say so that our lives will be changed Ezra would read the word, and then, you know, the way that they had the service laid out there, Ezra would read the word for a while, and then there appears to have been a pause, and he would send out these Levites to gather groups of people together, and then they would explain what Ezra had read. The emphasis was on understanding, not just hearing the word, but understanding the word. And so it still is in the church today. When Moses gave 
the law to God's people back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Listen to what he said to them. This has always been true for the fellowship of God's people. Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 and 6. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That is my deepest desire for the reputation of Oakwood Church in State College in Center County is that the people of the community would say, what a wise and understanding people. Because they have a hunger for and reverence the very word of God. And they strive to understand it. We must be students of the book, not just people of the book. Fifth characteristic, healthy fellowship displays conviction by God's word. This is clear in this text. Look at verse 9. Again, we see the Holy Spirit is at work among these people listening to the word of God because it says that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. That's what the Spirit of God does with the word of God in our lives. It makes us first weep. As they listened, the word revealed how sinful their lives had become and they grieved over their sin. The Bible must bring the pain of sorrow over sin before it brings the joy of renewal and life and grace. That's why James compares the word of God to a mirror because it displays God's glory to us and one of our responses that must be a part of our response to seeing the glory and the holiness of God in his word must be that we grieve and come under deep conviction for our sin. That's why Hebrews says that the word of God is like a double-edged sword that penetrates to the center of our hearts, judging our thoughts and attitudes. It lays us bare before God, the all-seeing and all-knowing God. Ezra and Nehemiah told him to stop weeping on this day, not because it was wrong to weep in response to what they saw in the word of God, but because that wasn't the day for weeping. That day was coming. We know that in the Jewish calendar, it was only nine days until the Day of Atonement. That was the day that looked forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, the day when the the blood of the sacrifice was put on the altar by the high priest, which represented the atoning blood that covered the sins of God's people. It was the hope for pardon, the hope for forgiveness. That day was coming. There was a day for grief and repentance. But this day, says Ezra and Nehemiah, is a day of celebration because God has poured out his spirit and we are reborn in our identity as God's people. And then, of course, if there is conviction of sin, that brings me to my last observation, that healthy fellowship displays obedience to the word of God. It's not just an emotional response in grieving over sin, but it brings about real change through the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says that the next day, Ezra got all the leaders and heads of the families together for a big Bible study. They started digging in deeper to what they've been reading together, and they found out that they hadn't been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles correctly for a very, very long time. They hadn't been studying the word of God. They hadn't been listening to God's word. Their traditions had fallen away. The biblical traditions, the ones that God had prescribed for them. The Feast of the Tabernacles was one of the great three feasts of the year. And they weren't observing it as they should. And what's interesting is that the Feast of Tabernacles is all about building fellowship. That's really one of the great purposes of that feast. Because it was where they came together, and as they describe it here, they would go out and get palm branches and build little huts, little tents, so to speak. And they had a big old camp meeting. All God's people would gather together to study the word of God God together, to worship together, to camp out. 
and celebrate their community that was formed by God's grace. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about, God's provision for them after the exodus. I really wish we could do more of that in the life of our church. Church camps, church retreats, camp meetings. There's a great tradition of that through the history of the church. Nothing like getting God's people together apart from all the distractions of the world. Get us together, camp out, and just worship together. Hear the word of God. Bind us together. Strengthen that unity and fellowship. I'm all for that. The word of God brings conviction and then it brings obedience. This is the difference between revival and what's been called revivalism. Revivalism is just stirring up emotions and that that all passes very quickly. But revival brings about conviction of sin, repentance, and real change in the lives of God's people. What I've just described for you in those six characteristics is biblical fellowship. And I pray, and I, I do believe, and I see it in the life of Oakwood Church. I pray that it only gets stronger in the years to come. I have a wild idea that maybe after we have all these series of messages on fellowship that we're going to actually begin our service, maybe have our beetle come in and bring our Bible in, and then when I get up here, I'll, I'll turn to this side of the congregation, and I'll say, we are, and you'll say, we are, and I'll turn to this side of the congregation, and, and you'll say, Oakwood, and then I'll turn to this side and say, we are, and based on last week's message, this side will say, in Christ, and then I'll turn to this side and say, let's all say together, we are, and then I'll turn to this side, and you all say, we are the people of That's a man-made tradition that I think would reinforce our identity as Scripture lays it out for us here in Nehemiah chapter 8. A biblical fellowship displays hunger for God's word that leads to a prominence and a reverence for God's word and leads to a response to God's word which includes understanding, conviction, and obedience. Scripture gives us our identity and purpose as a fellowship. It defines who we are. It defines our authority, it defines our creed, it defines our standards, it defines our traditions, and it defines our mission. And our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. Let me close with this quote from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And listen carefully to what he says about our fellowship with him and with each other. He says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. We were lost in darkness. But by your word and by your spirit, we have seen your glory. We have seen Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We've seen our sins washed away once and for all. We've seen our life renewed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And we see our future reigning with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. Your word has given us all this. It is what we live for. It's what binds us together. May that bond between us become strong in your word and in your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.